0: Welcome to another podcast from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. My name is Raj Persaud, and I'm a consultant psychiatrist based at the Bethlehem Royal and Maudsley Hospitals in South London. Today we're talking to Robert Young, who, with some co-authors, has published a fascinating paper in the July edition of the British Journal of Psychiatry. And the title of the paper is Young People Who Self-Harm. Robert is a psychologist, and he's based at the MRC Social and Public Health Sciences Unit at the University of Glasgow. Robert, before we come to the actual methodology of this study, um, there's increasing concern about self-harming young people, isn't there?
1: Yes, I think that's, that's generally the, the, the accepted conclusion, that it, there seems to be kind of uh, increased concern and certainly some evidence for rise, uh, rises of self-harm in young people. And when you say self-harm, what are you referring to? Um, by self-harm... Uh, We we normally mean deliberately injuring yourself or harming yourself, Um, not necessarily for the purposes of uh, killing yourself. There are many other reasons. Could you give us a description of the sort of of
0: behaviours we're talking about, a kind of overview of what comes out of the remit of self-harm?
1: Typically, um, the the most typical kind of method of self-harm is cutting, though there can be additional methods such as uh, burning yourself, slamming your hand on a door, and there can be more exotic methods... Such and more serious methods such as um, burning yourself with a cigarette and a variety of, of just any method possible. Okay, so um, the title of your paper
0: is Young People Who Self-Harm. So what was your definition of young people for the purposes of this paper?
1: Well, for the purposes of this paper, um, this was a, a longitudinal uh, study, so we followed up uh, people f- uh, young people from age 11 through to their final years of... Um, childhood and moving into adult, adulthood, so that's between 18 and 20.
0: Okay, and you did a kind of survey, a questionnaire survey, of their, their attitudes and their experiences of self-harm. Could you talk us through a little bit about the methodology?
1: This study is um, part of what's called the 11 to 16 study, so uh, this was a longitudinal study that we started through in the 1994. Uh, we followed up about 2,500 Young people, you know, when when they first, just before they started secondary school, and then we we'll followed them up um, roughly every couple of years right the way through until they were, um, and in this case, have left school about eighteen to twenty. So we've got some background information, including some psychiatric data and interviews and computerised interviews at fifteen and eighteen. So we've got quite a spectrum of, of information. In uh, the final survey, um, I joined the. Research and decided to, co- uh, to concentrate some of the work on, on self-harm.
0: And how did you select these people, and how many were they?
1: Um, this was, uh, uh, essentially, it was a community-based sort of um, randomised kind of um, survey. So it's representative of uh, the broad population of, of uh, the Clydeside Conurbation in Glasgow area. There were some losses to follow up, as you typically expect in this kind of study. Um, we, we, so we lost around about 50%, you know, following them, Calling people for nearly a decade, but then we did some some adjustment and checking and trying to statistically compensate for, for some of the, the losses, and there didn't seem to be any particular strong effect.
0: So, how many young people filled out the questionnaire in the end? In terms of ended up in the data of your paper,
1: uh, around about twelve and a half um, hundred.
0: Okay, you make a, a big point in the paper about how little research there's been done in terms of asking young people about self harm before.
1: There has been, uh, th- th- there's a complicating factor that uh, in the past we haven't been quite exactly sure what we mean by self-harm. There's been lots of different um, definitions and the difficulty is where there's been some clinical data, population-based studies are actually were relatively thin, uh, let alone population-based studies with some longitudinal information to help them out. The Dunedin study, which is a famous psychiatric study, is probably one of the few that has similar information. So let's talk about your results. Let's start, start off with um, the prevalence
0: of self harm because that was quite interesting.
1: Uh, well, typically, we found prevalences of, of, of we found a prevalence of seven point one percent. So that's roughly about one in fifteen, and that's typically what you get from um, sort of one point snapshot. Snap so we're reasonably sure that that our survey is accurate. The yearly prevalence of self harm in this this age group um, was around one and a half percent. So. It's one of those things where it's, it seemed, it's, it's a, common enough to be a public health concern, I think.
0: And you found um, gender differences, though, that were a little bit different to what you might expect.
1: Well, typically, in the clinical sample, you find very high prevalences in, in females and relatively low prevalences in males. If you go into population-based surveys, these tend to balance out slightly, and that's exactly what we found. There was a slightly raised prevalence in, in, in girls around about... Eight and a half percent and then it's around about five percent in uh, in boys also um
0: the methods that people use were quite interesting
1: yes, basically uh, there was a variety of different methods the typical method is it was cutting, although there were a variety of different methods used, um some of them more violent than others, such as slamming or or burning yourself. typically females tended to use cutting or scratching, and then there was a slight excess, more violent methods used by males.
0: But, but in fact, the prevalence between men and women, or girls and boys, was remarkably similar, I thought, compared to what the literature might have led us to expect.
1: I think the clinical literature, if we follow the clinical literature, we would expect there to be, to be large differences. If you follow the, the survey literature, you would expect a difference, um, though perhaps... This is a little lower than, 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 than some people might expect, but it is reasonably comparable with some of the survey data.
0: Now, what about the predictors of the kind of young person that ends up trying to self-harm? It sounds as though unemployment
1: um, or employment prospects seem to be a key issue. Self-harm is normally associated with some form of deprivation. Uh, now, the question here is, is that due to the background that they grew up in, in other words, their parental background and the area that they live in, or is that due to sort of where they end up in life? Um, and this was ideal because we'd follow people since they were living, some idea about the background, and then we've got some idea of where they're beginning to end up in the labour market. So we split our sample into three very broad groups, those who were in full-time education, so students, those who were um, in work, conventional work or training, and those who were unemployed or ill. For a variety of the reasons outside the labour market. Um, and the striking thing is that those outside the labour market were had a particularly high prevalence. Nearly one in five uh, had self-harmed at some point in their lifetime. And even more worrying, uh, they had the highest prevalence of self-harm within the past year. So we're talking about three times higher levels of lifetime self-harm and about seven times higher levels of Current self harm in the out of labour, the unemployed or outside the labour market group.
0: Did your study allow you to come to any theories about why young people self harm? You mentioned a link with deprivation, but it's still quite a perplexing subject, isn't it, as to exactly what's going on?
1: It, it is difficult um, because there's always the prospect of drift. In other words, people who self harm, people who are ill, drift out of un- employment, and, and to compensate for that uh, and drift into illness. To compensate for that somewhat, we excluded those who were, who were ill and then reran the analysis, and then that didn't seem to account for. You know, the results were virtually the same. When you, uh, when you
0: say ill, you mean people with sy- previous psychological problems or in contact with mental health services?
1: People who uh, were registered sick. Um, uh, so that includes people who were ill physically and also those who were uh, registered with psychiatric services. So why were you doing that? Why were you excluding them from the analysis to see well, well, what happened when you did that? This is just to make sure that it wasn't a circular argument. We, we find high rates in, in those of self-harm and those who are psychiatrically ill. That's not particularly informative. <laughs> right.
0: Okay. So what about theories um, in terms of the data? Did it help us think about why people self-harm? Because there are lots of different theories. One theory is people are trying to draw other people's attention to the distress. So there's a kind of audience type mm. theory. There's another one, which is it's about when people feel trapped and that therefore they feel that's the only thing they can do to express uh, an emotion that might be difficult
1: to express otherwise. Generally, the underlying reason for, for why uh, young people and people in general self harm is to relieve um, anxiety. So, to, uh, so what we did was we, asked, we simply asked uh, the young people why they self-harmed and that gave us some insight. And, those, and for those young people in education for their education, the reason, one of the main reasons why they self-harmed was to relieve anxiety uh, and and stress. What was striking was that those young people who were unemployed uh, were more likely to want to self-harm to kill themselves and that was again round about eight to nine-fold higher than than in the student group, so that's particularly striking. The idea that kind of
0: partly led to you doing the study is about this idea that there might be increasing prevalence of self-harm amongst young people. When you look at older cohorts, there doesn't seem to be quite the same rate. Why do you think that is, that self-harm levels are rising in the young, given what a worrying thought that is?
1: To be honest, I wish I knew. <laughs> it's, 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 it's one of the, uh, the topics that I'm trying to investigate. There are ideas that it's like an increasing levels of stress and pressure that put on young people, both those unemployed and those in academic life. That may be one reason, but the answer is we really don't know. What would you say is a take-home message, particularly for, let's say,
0: clinical psychiatrists um, who might be reading the journal? What would the take-home message of your paper be?
1: I think the take-home message would be that I think you should be vigilant of young people who are unemployed or outside the labour market. They seem to be a particularly vulnerable group. Now, the one thing to note, we also asked uh, which services young people who, who self-harm used and the unemployed and out-of-work group were really quite well-known to services, so despite the fact that they are actually well-recognised you know, well and, and uh, well-known to services, they still continue to self-harm, so this seems to be a particularly vulnerable group. What about parental social class? Because,
0: again, you came up with some interesting comments about that in the paper.
1: Yes, uh, an interesting finding was that parental social class really didn't predict whether the young person went on to self-harm which was again quite surprising because you would normally associate deprivation with high risk Um, so it really seems to be it's where where, um, young people end up rather than the the background that that they come from. In the implication section of the paper, you
0: comment on the fact that compared to other studies, a very high rate of the number of young people who were self-harming in your survey were known to their GPs, so you felt there was the possibility of some kind of intervention at that level.
1: Mm -hmm. One of the kind of aspects of self-harm is that it tends to be a hidden phenomenon or a secretive phenomenon. Um, That wasn't exactly what we found. We found that something like 17 out of the 20 of the people who were currently self-harming let someone know that they, that they were self-harming. Um, now this was normally a, a friend or a parent, but GPs, um, something like 45%, uh, knew about the young person's self-harm. So again, this, this would seem to be a route if you want, uh, for intervention, uh, because out of all of the partic- serv- uh, service use, NHS service uh, bodies, GPs seem to be most informed
0: where are, is your research now? Are there other studies in the pipeline in which you're continuing this work?
1: Yes, yeah, so I have uh, quite a few studies in the pipeline, both from a uh, clinical perspective and looking at variation uh, amongst area. And I'm, uh, my particular focus is on uh, youth culture and groups. And that's interesting because self harm and suicide in general uh, has this contagion element and um, influence element, but also. Um, young people in groups can also help and support people who self-harm. So what are your theories around subcultures
0: within, amongst young people that might be linked to
1: self-harm? I think certain subcultures may, may attract young people who are um, disturbed or ha- are having difficulties. And again, if they become involved in a kind of helpful, supportive network, I think that can probably help. Though I think one has to take caution in interpreting the evidence because this is a relatively new area. I thought there was some previous research
0: that indicated that certain subcultures, let's say like heavy metal fans or fans of goth uh, pop music, for example, uh, have higher rates of self-harming thoughts at the very least. Is that the kind of thing that you're thinking of?
1: Uh, yes, but that was a study that published, uh, I had published in the BMG uh, uh, last year. and There were particularly high rates, uh, something like 50%, of uh, those who'd identified uh, with goth with, uh, subculture had, had self-harmed or attempted suicide, or had high rates of a- attempted suicide. But when we looked at which came first, in other words, did people begin to get into kind of the subculture before they self-harmed, or did they self-harm before they went into the subculture, it seemed to be that it was, it was a attraction. In other words, young people may identify with um, the outlook and be drawn towards that, that kind of... Um, Subgroup, rather than be influenced or, you know, have some sort of causal influence into them self-harming. So I think in general it's probably supportive. So in other words, these were young people
0: who already had a slightly negative outlook or, or were more inclined to self-harm, were, uh, were attracted to the group,
1: not that the group took uh, a perfectly, uh, for want of a better word, normal group and transformed them into self-harmers. No, I think that kind of what little evidence there, there, there is tends to support uh, the attraction rather than the, the causative model. Robert Young, thank you very much
0: indeed.